Thank you for choosing to listen to the Emmaus Radio Ministry Podcast. Each of these messages were given by various faculty, staff, and friends of Emmaus Bible College. To view each series as a whole, or for more information about similar Emmaus ministries, please visit concerninghim.com. That's C-O-N-C-E-R-N-I-N-G-H-I-M.com. Thanks for joining us again as we study the Gospel according to Matthew. Last time we looked briefly at some introductory matters and saw that there is sufficient reason to see the Gospel of Matthew as being composed by the tax collector turned apostle Matthew himself and that he was writing to Jewish believers in Jesus in order to explain how the Lord is the Messiah, the fulfillment of Old Testament hopes for salvation, and the culmination of the story of Israel. The Gospel, according to Matthew, sets out to cover a huge amount of theological territory, including not only the themes above, but also things like what we might call kingdom ethics, the nature of the church, Israel, the kingdom, how these realities relate, and the future judgment, to name a few. It might strike us as strange, then, that with so much ground to cover, we open our Bibles to the first page of the first book of the New Testament, and we find a decently long genealogy. I have turned to the introductions in Matthew and Luke several times in the past while preparing Christmas messages, and, well, I hate to admit it, but it's only recently that I resisted the temptation to just skip the genealogy. After all, Matthew evidently thought this was a good way to start his book. But why devote so much real estate and such an important location to climb up Jesus' family tree? But what appears to some modern readers as a dull beginning is actually a highly significant component of Matthew's gospel, which foreshadows major themes which will follow. In fact, if we miss some of the features which Matthew highlights here by, quote, skipping to the good parts we are less likely to trace some significant threads throughout the rest of the gospel. So, keeping in mind that this genealogy plays a significant role, let's jump into Matthew starting in verse 1 of chapter 1. Afterwards, we'll consider a few of its unique features, how it compares to Luke's gospel, and then how it alerts us to important theological themes. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph. And Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiad, and Abiad the father of Eliakim, 
And Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Eliad. And Eliad the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathen, and Mathen the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. The introductory statement in verse 1 pulls out for us a couple of important names in the genealogy. But the simple expression, the book of the genealogy, already gives us a lot to chew on. It has been variously understood, but one of the likeliest explanations is that this beginning book of the New Testament is paralleling the first book of the Old Testament. After all, genealogy translates the Greek word genesis. And when we turn to that book, several of its accounts are divided up by the loose repetition of something like what we read in Genesis 5.1. This is the book of the generation or the genealogy of Adam. Each major turning point in the story in Genesis is introduced this way. And it may be that Matthew is signaling to his reader that what he's about to talk about is the next big thing that God has done since the book of Genesis. But we don't have to get the Genesis connection to see that the figure of Matthew's gospel is important. Matthew starts right out of the gate by calling him Jesus Christ. The way that some people use this, uh, they treat Christ like it were the last name of Jesus. But Christ is the Greek word for the Hebrew Messiah. Though it will take the characters in Matthew's gospel a while to learn about Jesus' true identity. Uh, as the readers, we are told right at the outset that he is the Messiah, the Christ. Now, exactly what the role of the Messiah was to be was variously understood within first century Judaism. But as Matthew continues to write his gospel, what he means by that term will become increasingly clear. In fact, the very next couple of expressions uh, connect being the Messiah to Israel's hopes founded in the Hebrew Bible. It has been often noticed that Matthew's genealogy is different than Luke's. Some of the differences are pretty superficial, like going backwards in times versus going forward in time, but others are significant. Now, various suggestions have been offered, but they all have their own weaknesses. The simple fact is that we are not sure why these look so different. Now, a skeptic might look on and say that this is a contradiction, but a believer can look on and say that while we don't know exactly why the lists differ, it is possible that Jesus is traced back to the Davidic line in more than one way. At the end of the day, calling this a contradiction or not rests on a person's presuppositions. And since we believe that the Bible is the word of God and without error, some harmonization is possible. But let's not let the historical question crowd out what is happening theologically. The Messiah is the son of David and fulfills the promises made to David in the covenant of 2 Samuel 7. He is one of David's offspring who would sit on his throne and rule forever. He is the son of Abraham, the seed through whom all the world would be blessed. It may also be that we are to think of the literal sons of David and Abraham, Solomon and Isaac, after all, they do appear in the genealogy. If so, Solomon and Isaac function as types of the Lord Jesus. It is Matthew's Gospel, 1142, that says, A greater than Solomon is here. And as Isaac was understood in the first century, 
he was seen as willingly offering himself on Mount Moriah. And this too would find a fulfillment in the Lord Jesus, who willingly gives himself as a sacrifice, who willingly offers his body and blood for the forgiveness of sins. But though there may be some Solomon and Isaac types here, the really significant names brought into the spotlight by verse 1 for understanding Jesus are David and Abraham. Notice that the genealogy has been broken up into several sections or chapters, so that what we have in chapter 1 is first Abraham to David, and then in chapter 2, David to the exile, and then in chapter 3, from exile to Messiah. And each of these has 14 generations, though Matthew is a little bit playful with the way he gets to that number, and even this, number 14, underscores the importance of David. The practice of gematria, which totaled up the numeric value of Hebrew words, may be at play here, since uh, the numeric value of DVD, Dalet Vav Dalet, is 14. So Jesus' connection to David is very important for us to understand. It means that Jesus is the great king who will sit on David's throne, ruling over Israel. It means that very early on, Matthew has alerted us to the possibility of a David-Jesus typology. And this is fitting with the Jewish context. Uh, pretty much at any time in Israel's history, he was seen as the great king of Israel. But though Matthew would undoubtedly made much of David, one of the interesting features of the genealogy is the inclusion of women. Now, sometimes commentators inadvertently say that Matthew mentions Bathsheba. Technically, this is inaccurate. Notice that verse 6 reads, David was the father of Solomon, the wife of Uriah. From 2 Samuel, we know that her name is Bathsheba, but the way Matthew expresses it emphasizes the famous scandal. He refuses to just gloss over it, pretend like it never happened, which he could have done by just saying by Bathsheba or just leaving out that detail altogether and say that David was the father of Solomon. But no, as great as David is, as high of a place as he will occupy in the story of Jesus, he's still a sinner. In fact, in such a short listing of names, person after person, sinner after sinner is brought to our attention. Israel's history with its many ups and mostly downs, this is the people of God, rebellious as they were, and yet God is faithful to his promises to them and sends the Messiah to these people. Before moving on, let me point out that the use of women in genealogies is rare and unexpected. We also read of Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth. An explanation which you still sadly find promoted is that these were sexually promiscuous women, and Matthew's inclusion of them somehow prepares readers for the virgin giving birth in the next section. But this simply doesn't fit the facts and, frankly, is a misogynistic interpretation and just needs to be abandoned. The worst of the women in the list may be Tamar. She's famous for her appearance in the Bible as a prostitute. But, you know, the purpose of that story is to show how depraved Judah was, the patriarch from whom the Messiah came. The story concludes with Judah confessing that Tamar is more righteous than she is. And reading Ruth or Bathsheba as sexually aggressive just says more of the interpreter's imagination than it does the scriptural record. If there's any reference to sexual misbehavior, it is to highlight the fault of the patriarchs. But the women seem to be a group, and the idea of sexual promiscuity just doesn't account for all the data. Instead, the most likely reason Matthew underscores these women in the genealogy 
is to show the theme of Gentile inclusion in the Old Testament storyline. Like the genealogy itself, Matthew's gospel is mostly Jewish, but even then, it ends with the call for discipleship to go out to all the nations. Let's return to another interesting feature of Matthew's genealogy. He has broken up Israel's history into three chapters, and we just saw the importance of Abraham and David. But the next time marker is the exile. You know, I'm always struck as I read through the Old Testament at how big of a deal the Babylonian captivity was. The prophets are all categorized around it. The pre-exilic prophets who warn the people that exile is coming. The exilic prophets who help Israel make sense of why this tragedy is happening. And the post-exilic prophets who comfort and exhort the people about how to act since the exile has already happened. All this to say, the exile is a major plot line in the story of the Old Testament. There is a sense in which some Jewish people at the time saw themselves as still, in some way, being in exile. See Nehemiah chapter 9 for such a perspective. Now, Matthew hasn't given us enough clues as to know how Jesus fits into the exile plot line, but it is enough at this point to note it and keep an eye out for it as we continue to read the rest of the gospel. With what seemed at first to be, uh, to some people, a boring collection of names, turns out to be a theologically significant recap of the story of Israel. In order to show how God has worked in history with Israel's strengths and many failures, bringing it to a climax in the person of Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, there are several lessons to learn, but at this point, it would be worth taking a look at the big, broad picture. You know, some of the names on this list are famous characters, and we well recognize them, maybe from Sunday school or even a cursory reading of the Old Testament. But some are obscure figures. Like a dot-to-dot children's puzzle, each element has significance only when one can see the larger picture. History is not a collection of random events. History is his story, God's story. And in God's story, the climax is the person of his son, Jesus Christ. He is the center point. And no person, great or small, is a throwaway. Some people think they're too big, and some people think that they are too small. Uh, Both problems are remedied by realizing that we all have a part to play in the great story of Jesus the Messiah. Thank you for listening to the Emmaus Radio Ministry Podcast. This ministry is possible because of the generous contributions from our partners around the world. For more information about partnering with us, please visit Emmaus.edu partner.